to the Garage Night. I'm Randall. And I'm Jamie. And Jamie is joining us tonight. He's, uh, he's a friend of pretty much everyone on the network. Uh, he is uh, into off-road racing, uh, not super far off from our last guest, but um, more deserty. Uh, you have friends that race in the like the Baja 1000, right? Yep, uh, we've done a handful of races down in Mexico and more here in the states, like the Mint 400. Uh, uh, yeah, Mint 400, Vegas Torino, um, Parker 425. You know, the Mint and Parker are both three lap races, so 120, 150 miles a lap. That's awesome. I've always liked the kind of off-road stuff. You know, having a Ranger, everyone with a Ranger's always looked at the <laughs> the Camberg kit. Yeah. You know, long uh, travel fiberglass because of the, you know, the IFS is better for that. So everyone thinks, oh, well, I'll just go pre-runner direction instead of like a, like a off-road wheeler, you know. Oh, like versus solid axle. Exactly. Because, yeah. you know, if, if you're going to solid axle, then, you know, uh, if you want to do like off-road wheeling, like rock crawling and such, it's better to have generally better to have a, a solid axle. So when you, you know, life gives you IFS. <laughs> well, cause like back in the eighties or whatever, my dad raced class four, which is short wheelbase four by four. So he had like a 70 Bronco he raced doing all the desert stuff, you know, a little slower back then cause of the lack of shock technology, but yeah, because did they even have like triple bypass shocks, or that that must be a more modern? Uh, That's a, a mid '90s thing, probably when that came on. So my dad's Bronco had three Fox emulsion shocks per corner, no bypass tubes, no remote reservoir. They were still monotube nitrogen charged. But wow, yeah, that's that's pretty uh, pretty low tech today, and you'd, so you'd have multiple for. So you'd have more cooling? Yeah, um, they just were not very much bigger than the stock shocks. They just weren't giant like they are today, so they couldn't generate as much dampening, but also, you know, three times the shocks, three times less they have to work or whatever. But I've driven, uh, my like a month ago, a late 80s buggy that still had three shocks per corner, and that thing still handled great. You know, it was still able to be dialed in back then, even with that. Uh, lower level of technology. Yeah, because nowadays you have so much control over uh, rebound compression, rebound dampening, and then, mm-hmm. you know, there's, you know, you can do so much just, you know, with screwdrivers, basically, on, on an existing shock. And um, from what I remember back then, you pretty much had, you were limited to a large extent by like what holes they drilled in the body of the casing on the inside. So if you wanted to change the dampening, you almost had to replace shocks entirely. Well, they still had a, um, they're called shims, but it's a, you know, a series of decreasing diameter washers basically that go on each side of the piston, one for compression, one for rebound. And you can change the diameter or the thickness to um, speed up or slow down either direction. And then there's, you can change the height size of the holes in the pistons and whatnot to, for like, if it's you really can't get it to move fast enough, you might open up holes in the piston. But yeah, and that's that's all internal work. Yeah. So uh, you know the stuff you're working on now. I would assume uh, you have a a bevy of of different uh, ways to adjust all of that in a lot simpler fashion than 
taking it apart and changing out internal washers. Yeah, um, there's still like the modern trucks will have a coilover and a bypass shock per quarter. You can't you the coilover does a little bit amount of work, kind of like the lower speed stuff um, where the bypasses in the shock wouldn't be moving enough fluid or have enough pressure to move. Then your coilover is doing the work, um, but. So when, um, pretend I don't know what I'm talking about because I really don't. <laughs> so when they say, you know, a triple bypass shock, that's what, you know, when you, when the Raptor came out, that was what they always said, a triple bypass Fox shock and everyone, oh yeah, and, and nodded. Um, <laughs> um, can you explain kind of in, in um, layman's terms, the difference between like a triple bypass and a more conventional shock? So... What a bypass shock does, regardless of the amount of stages or tubes or whatever, is it makes the shock position sensitive. When the piston is between the opening or the two ends of the bypass tube, it allows fluid to transfer around the, the piston in the shock. So it makes that zone softer than it would be if, the sh if it was a non-bypass or past the end of the bypass. So if it's in a zone where it's in between the opening and uh, two tubes, it is then that much softer again. And then it gets past one end and stiffens up a little bit, it gets past the other end and stiffens up a little bit. Um, so it just makes the shock position sensitive in either rebound or compression. If you hear someone say a triple bypass, it ha most likely has two compression and one rebound uh, bypasses. Some of the bigger shocks go up to five. Um, there's a couple different uh, theories on the positioning of the tubes, whether in parallel or in series or stacked. Um, and it just, yeah, allows you to tune uh, the shock to be in each of the zones to have different characteristics without taking the shock apart. It makes it, you know, progressive, I guess you could say also, but yeah, you're able to change the valving externally. So the idea of that would be um, if you're, you know, in your case, bombing through a desert at, you know, 80 miles an hour and you have, you know, one of the, one of the wheels, uh, you know, coming back down and then it hits, you know, another ridge, another whoop or, or something. And, and then it pushes back up. You may want it to start traveling, you know, fast at first to absorb that shock. And then the next stage of the single travel of the shock to get stiffer so that it doesn't fly up uh, and you yeah. can you can achieve that sort of a multiple not density of but multiple speed in the same throw of the shock yep that's exactly it so like when you're cruising and you're basically doing everything at right height everything's pretty soft and if you drop out into a hole you know you don't want the tire just to get shot down so you'll have um, a it'll rebound quicker and then slow down once it gets out of the rebound for the out of that rebound bypass tube and then you know once you hit once it catches ground again or hit something you know it's it's going to start coming up fast and then progressively slow down and then it will get into the bump stop where it really slows down quickly yeah that's that's almost an immediate one and that keeps it from uh you know pushing the pushing the wheel up past where it's supposed to go into the body and possibly uh putting some torque on like uh you know a-arm uh, yeah, or the shock itself. If if or bottoming you, out. Yeah, you don't want the shock to bottom out, and that's why there's limit straps because you don't want the shock to be the limiting factor in the droop of the suspension. 
that's one thing that I didn't know about until embarrassingly late in, uh, you know, uh, learning about cars. I was probably about 16 when I went, why is there a ratchet strap on that truck? <laughs> Cause I didn't know. I didn't think about the fact that, you know, suspension could droop so low that it would basically take the shock apart. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, when you get to the limits of shock, you know, your suspension might get into a bind at the same time or near the same time the shock bonds out. So it's still preventing some stuff like that. But that's, you know, the kind of there more for the shock itself. There are I have seen some vehicles that like trophy trucks that didn't have um, bump stops on the front and they were known to crack the mounting points in the A-arm or break them out of the arm completely. So it, and that can be fixed with shock tuning, but it just makes that end of the shock travel that much stiffer. Hmm. Man, there's, there's a lot just to the suspension of these. Um, so how long have you been, you know, helping out on, uh, on these trucks? Well, I grew up in the eighties with going to races with my dad and he, but he kind of got out in the early nineties and then the internet came along and I joined some forums and started meeting people and going to races. Um, and then I did a, like one race with my friend that had a buggy. Um, and then he through his dad, you know, they had a truck and sold it to a guy. Um, and so I started going to races. You know, I'm like, Hey buddy, uh, can I come to the race with you? You know? And then, so I started going to race with him and then they bought a trophy truck. So I helped out with them for a few years doing trophy truck stuff and then, um, met some other people. We still race that buggy every once in a while. Um, yeah. So the hierarchy of, of off-road at the bottom is the bug and at the top is the trophy truck. Do I have that about right? Yeah, about right. There's, I don't know, 30-something different classes. It goes all the way from like a stock old-school VW bug um, where you only had a cage um, it, all the way up to $750,000 know, trophy trucks that they're like F1 butt trucks, <laughs> basically. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into those and they're you know, 800 horsepower or so. Oh, at the thousand these days, they started finally putting big, big blocks in them, which I, I don't know why it took them so long to do that. Cause they were like 460 cubic inch small blocks and they'd only last a race or two cause they were so high strung. Mm-hmm. But So they finally started going, going big block in those. So they, yep. they'll, they'll run thousand horsepower. I wonder uh, if it had to do with weight or if it had to do with, I mean, I don't think cost would be the problem. No, uh, I don't economy. think weight and packaging probably. Um, you know, small boxer, I guess, were just always what was used. So that's kind of what chassis were built around. Um, mm. But now, you know, a lot of teams even use Joe Gibbs uh, racing motors, which is kind of a NASCAR thing. But they're surviving, you know, and and they're good motors. Well, they use, uh, I should say, automakers use these races as a good way to test Yep. Uh, a lot of things from, you know, from the Raptor to the Volkswagen Touareg over at the Dakar. Well, and they, the Honda Ridgeline, you know, they have like a tube chassis one now, but I think they had a more basic one. And Ford with the Raptor did like a 24 hour in zero degree weather in the, you know, their test chamber, stuck it in the Raptor, did the Baja 1000, then put it back on the dyno, you know, all within a week or whatever. So. Oh, so that um, I know they did something similar when they first released the EcoBoost, the 3.5 EcoBoost. It might have been, they might have repeated that, yeah. Yeah, so they, because um, I know they took that, just a regular F-150, they did the Baja 1000, then re it, and then they towed 
they towed something around an oval for uh, like 5,000 miles without more than a stopping for gas. Uh-huh. Uh, and then they did, uh, they went out into the Pacific Northwest out here and they like used it as a, a log skid, like for pulling logs uh-huh. uh, from around the job site. And they did a big torture test to kind of prove, you know, to truck buyers that they could buy a turbo V6. You know, yeah, that, that was first coming out. That sounds like a little more than they did for the 6.2, but yeah. Yeah. that that I mean, that's a good idea because the Baja really tests uh, a lot on a vehicle. Yeah, that's a lot of shock loading and shock unloading, you know, and then in addition to being full of dirt. But, you know, every little bump when you're on the gas, you know, is applying all sorts of different crazy stresses and torques all over the drivetrain, the transmission, the motor, you know, it's easy way to break a crankshaft or, you know. Because you're going to be, you know, on wide open throttle or close to it on a lot of these machines, especially kind of the more mid-tier, higher strung ones. And, you know, if you, every time that you're contacting the ground and then uncontacting and then recontacting, your tire is going to be at a different speed probably yep. than what the engine's trying to push it at. So you're going to have, you know, driveline slack back and forth all day long. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that's just going to slowly wear out, you know, U-joints and CV joints, uh, things that, you know, it would take years for you to simulate um, out in the real world. And you can do that in a few hours. Yeah. So like in in the buggy we've raced down there, it has, a, I can't remember if it's four speed or five speed, but it's a Mendiola transaxle, purpose-built transaxle. Um, you know, VW style transaxle, but everything in it is bigger. But the problem is with this transmission and similar ones is that you can't use reverse because reverse is like the size of your pinky. So you only get to use it like on pavement when you're not turning to back up. You know, you don't get to use reverse because you'll break it. And then then there's broken parts in your transmission floating around. And we and actually get somewhere else and then break something else. Yeah. And like on day one of a day four race, we lost reverse, but we're lucky enough to be able, it didn't, it just fell, all fell to the bottom, I guess. But Yeah, that's, that's pretty lucky. So what do you say the average uh, completion rate is for doing a Baja type event? Um, do you, do most people usually finish? Is it a big difference between the Volkswagens and the buggies and the, trophy trucks how often they survive so the buggies and some other vehicles get what's called the sportsman bypass so they'll get to bypass some of the more very remote and difficult parts of the course um everyone has the same time limit um i think the last time we did the thousand it was a 36 hour time limit um and that and then everyone gets that time limit and it's based on when you you yourself start not when the race starts so if you start 15 minutes behind them and the deadline's midnight you're deadlines 1215 okay yeah like a like an isd like a minutes race you you know you start on your minute and then it's time from then so it's a time trial more than a race yeah and like the class 11 buggies it's always very iffy if they'll finish the race um very iffy so what's the what's the failure rate on that like they're just slow 80 percent they missed the deadline i guess they don't necessarily not finished and if people miss the deadline, they'll still finish the race. They'll, you know, just doesn't count. Yeah, no one's there to to receive them, but they know that they 
finished, you know, their allotted miles and the car survived. Yep. Uh, but like among general classes at the thousand, the finishing rate's probably around 50%. 50% yeah. in general, huh? So uh, what uh, what levels have you have you been involved with? Have you done, you know, stock uh, VW class? Have you, about where do you hang out? Do you generally do kind of the middle classes? I'd say, yeah, the middle class. The buggy we have is called a class 12, but because of the motor, we have to run it up a level in class 10. And the only real difference between the two is class 12 is a VW beam style front end, and then class 10 is an A-arm uh, style front end. So a little more uh, suspension travel and then, uh, a guy I race with that lives in Texas, he has what's called a uh, trophy truck spec, which is an unlimited truck, but with a limited sealed motor that's the same for everyone. Um, just for like the, the idea behind that class is it's a driver's class and it's budget oriented. Yeah, because when you start changing, you know, engine components and blueprinting, that sort of stuff, costs can go up really quickly and yeah. you kind of mentioned f1 for those unlimited trophy trucks i'm sure the budgets though not necessarily f1 are close enough to 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 boggle one's mind because there's a lot of r&d that goes in yes um so the motor for the trophy truck spec is it's an ls3 it's a 525 horsepower eight thousand dollar motor you know your average trophy truck motor costs fifty thousand dollars and you're going through three of those in a season um, oh. your LS3 will last you an entire season if you don't run out of oil or something, um, or, you know, bury it in dirt or whatever. So $8,000 a season or 150,000. Yeah. yeah. That's, and that is one step up, uh, separate or is there. That's pretty much one step. You might get a class one buggy in between like class one buggies used to be faster than trophy trucks, but because they have an independent rear suspension, they can't get the rear wheel travel. Uh, the trophy trucks can. Um, the, the class one is faster than a trophy truck spec car. Um, it's an unlimited um, four wheel independent suspension vehicle. So, do you mostly uh, run in the four wheel drive or any of the uh, two wheel drive stuff? So, four wheel drive is outlawed in trophy truck spec um, just for cost reasons. Um, and there's no such thing as a four wheel drive buggy. So, Okay, so most of what you run is is rear drive. Yes, um, the the razors and stuff do have four wheel drive, um, and that can help them be faster than a lot of the buggies and a lot of the parts. But their um, their finishing rate is low because they're fragile. Yeah, and so like side by sides. Yeah. Wow. So they're they're running those uh, through. Are those running a thousand miles? Oh yeah, they do the whole race. Wow, that's impressive because those are pretty small machines. So how size-wise, I've always expected a buggy to be quite a bit bigger than like a UTV side-by-side. But, I mean, now that I know there's so many different classes, I could very well be wrong. Yeah, and there's stock UTV, there's modified UTV, and there's like unlimited. You'll see scratch-built tube chassis UTVs. Um, and they're still smaller than a buggy. There's, you know, still your standard UTV or side-by-side size for the most part. Um, okay. Um, 
there's there's a lot more to this than I was realizing. <laughs> so so the the buggy that you guys usually run, you said it's a it's Volkswagen based. Uh, it has the beam front suspension, the the two beams with the the trailing arms, I guess, or whatever the old school VW style suspension. But it's all hand fabricated. Um, it's longer beams, wider wider arms, um, and everything. And I think we get about 13 or 14 inches of front wheel travel out of that and the back swing arm, um, probably around 14. And that's, you said that's a transaxle yep. back there. So okay. rear suspension travel is really only limited by the CV angle you can get. And we use 934 CVs, so a little bigger CVs, um, not necessarily for more travel, but for more durability. Yeah, CVs are really good for durability because they keep 100% of their strength at any angle until it goes to zero. <laughs> right. Um, Versus and, a U-joint, which goes down proportionally with the angle. Right. And Yeah, and it's, I, don't, I don't think we've ever looked at what the angles are, full droop and full compression, um, but they're well within what CVs can handle. Yeah, as long as they're not going to snap, then they're going to be as strong as they're going to be. Which I I have CVs in the um, at least in the Ranger. Uh, I assume uh, the BMW X5 has uh, CVs mm-hmm. all the way around. Um, and the oil, I, or sorry, the grease, not the oil, is the stickiest grease you've ever seen. And you know, and you got to pack all the CVs with it and everything, and then you got to make like four spare sets in case you got to swap an axle out or something, and then you got to safety wire all the bolts, you know, while you're working around all this grease. And there's two layers of boots to keep all the grease where you know where it should be, and yeah. And you mentioned, uh, you know, hand built pieces. Uh, over the years, you have sent uh, megabytes of pictures of custom uh, welded and fabricated pieces that just remind me that I don't know how to weld. <laughs> and uh, most of that welding has probably been my friend, um, but I'm a, I've seen like NASCAR cars and they're just kind of, someone took a MIG, MIG welder and moved it along. And, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I think one of the cool things about off-road is the art that goes into building these vehicles. Like every part picks every part fits perfectly and it's the best TIG welds you've ever seen, whether it's, you know, a single stack of dimes or, you know, someone's doing a weave or whatever, every weld is just perfect and it's beautiful. There's some incredible stuff that's uh, come across on our, our group chat that I just stare at and go, that is just like you said, it's, it's an art. It's more than just a skill at that point. Yeah. And my friend that does this will tell everyone that he's not a very good welder. <laughs> Um, that he needs to be better for how long he's been welding. And, you know, there are people that are better than him and, and know more, but uh, he, he's been doing it and he does it right. And yeah. So how much, how much of this buggy is, is built and how much is bought on average? So this buggy is like, it's a 97 or something Chenoweth. Um, so it was bought um, and it's had some modifications over the years Um big suspension upgrades it had still had a torsion bar rear i think when they got it so now it's you know coil over and bypass and everything and all the parts are now wider and longer to give it better stability and a a little bit when you make the suspension component longer you get more travel without doing anything else so 
Um, and it's had upgrades like that over the years, and it's no longer an air-cooled Type 4 motor. It's a 2.4 Ecotech. Okay, yeah, the Ecotech, that's a... Uh trying to remember all the ecos ecotech is a is a chevy motor correct yeah okay and I this think, is oh, i think sorry. there was a 2.4 ecotech in uh, my wife's chevy malibu actually and this is one of the non-direct injected motors which are getting hard to find these days um if we have to ever end up placing it i'm not sure what we're going to do um, oh, i wish we would have kept that old car around not really but <laughs> um but it runs on pump gas, it runs on premium, whereas the old Type 4, you know, took 110 octane, you know, and is air-cooled, makes a little bit less power, a little bit less torque. This thing is just, will run forever. Uh, and uh, it says, so that's a, they just run a four-speed uh, in that with reverse? It's a four or five-speed, I can't remember. Um, it, but yeah, it, it has a quote reverse. Yeah, yeah. The little pinky size thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And so these are all, uh, these are all manuals. They, do they run automatics in any of these classes? Is uh, it... They've experimented with like automatic trans axles over the years, but nothing's really ever stuck. Um, I don't know if it's a packaging thing or a durability thing, um, but these cars are light enough that a, a stick is okay. You get into heavier cars with a stick, you're really going to start breaking stuff. But they got skinnier tires. You know, I, this car weighs 2,000 pounds. Um, so it's not yeah. as big of a deal. And with the purpose-built racing transmission, if it had a stock bus in it or something, it would break. Yeah, I uh, just, you know, following automotive and watching the automatic transmission usurp the manual, not just in efficiency and comfort but in performance with the you know the pdk 10 10 years ago really uh showing that an automatic can be you know stronger and faster and new the new gt500 is an automatic simply because the manual wouldn't take the power <laughs> uh, i was wondering if that was also starting to become the case in the off-road world it's actually kind of going back the other way so for the last 20 years a Turbo 400 has kind of been the big ticket with a reed case and all the gears and everything. And, and, you know, it's a $25,000 transmission and you'll go through two or three in a season in the trophy truck. Um, and now like Albans and Fortins, they ha do have sequential, you know, four five and six speeds for these trucks. Um, but like the Fortin, I think you have to turn the truck off to put it in reverse. Um, and Mason now the people that make the all wheel drive trophy truck have, it's a spur gear, dog ring faced, uh, six speed quote manual transmission, but it's activated with hydraulics like uh, an automatic is. Um, so there's no lift shifting. You don't have to turn it off to go into reverse or anything like that. Um, and it's been in a couple trucks in a couple races and it's, it's, it hasn't broken. Um, one or two of the trucks have not finished for other reasons, but so far so good and it, like mason in the last couple of years has really elevated the game they figure out how to make all-wheel drive live um teams have experimented with it in the past um either had transfer case problems or cv issues up front because they would have to limit the amount of travel um and what mason's done is stick a portal axle like a unimog or a 
a Humvee on the front to reduce the CV angles. Um, and also you can take the load off the CVs because you can do the reduction gear reduction after the CVs. So you can have a lower gear ratio um, in the, the differential on that end of the truck and less strain on the, on the axles themselves. Yep. That makes sense. Um, so you, you say you do a lot of different races in the U S and in Mexico. Uh, what, what do you think is your, your favorite or like when, when you look at this season coming up, what's your, what do you look forward to doing? Is it the mint? Is it the Reno to Vegas? Is it the Baja? Oh, the, the races in the States are fun. Uh, but nothing beats racing down in Mexico. There's, you know, the granddaddy of them all, the Baja 1000. Um, and then there's another race I've done called the Nora 1000, which is more like a rally. It stops at night and is over four or five days. And it's almost more of a party than a race. Everyone's there just to have a good time, and it's more filled with vintage vehicles. Um, and then the Baja 1000 is, you know, just a constant 30-hour train wreck that keeps happening over and over again. Um, so there's the excitement there. Um, but So given if you had to just choose one for a year, you do the, the 1000 down in Mexico? Yeah, either one of the thousands, the Nora or the Baja 1000. Yeah, because it seems like the Nora might be a little more uh, kicked back, but the Baja would be, um, though more difficult, possibly more rewarding from a competitive standpoint. Exactly. Yeah, and but like in the last time we did Nora, we I don't know if you know who Rod Hall is, but we got to pass him in the buggy while he was driving his old Bronco. But that's that's cool. I like Broncos as a as a trophy truck. You know, I never want to see someone cut an original fender again, but. Um, you know, seeing those, uh, bombing around, you know, uh, in the desert is, is really a, a sight to behold though. I think maybe for comedic effect, my favorite is the, is a big white, uh, last generation Bronco, uh, bombing through the desert. You know, <laughs> and they made it out of LA and he's <laughs> still going. There's actually quite a few companies dedicated to Bronco, that generation of Bronco parts days, the the last years, um, they're gotten super popular again. It's impossible to find one that runs for under like five grand right now. Um, and there's people that make them longer, extend them, you know, cage them, four link them, put a big motor in them. Um, and there's no place they can't go, nothing they can't do. It's just how much talent the driver has. It really is a good, solid base. You know, it may not be the, the most capable thing made that year, but it's, it's right up there and it's so simple compared to, you know, what could be like, I'd say like a land cruiser might be more capable in some aspects. Uh, but the Bronco is so much simpler, so much easier to kind of modify. And it's got independent suspension, but it's not an a arm style. It's a twin traction beam. And that ups the durability right there. Um, Cause you're not dealing with such extreme, angles because the the beams are longer than the arms would be so you have a little less angle change throughout the travel for axles and stuff and people extend the axles uh, or the beams and make them longer um, for increased travel without having to modify other parts of the vehicle um, reinforce them plate them move ball joints around so you can stay within your camber or your caster settings um, longer radius arms to reduce the caster change and there's a there's a lot of tricks a lot of little uh you know brainiac things that you can do to 
to kind of beat physics, uh, yep. like you were mentioning with um, with the portal axles to take some of the you know the stress off of the the CV joints. Uh, are there any any other kind of clever tricks that you know people like me may not have thought? It's like, oh well, all you got to do is. Well, one of the coolest things I ever saw back in the day was on the old Jeep truck. Um, solid axle front, but high suspension travel numbers. And the problem with that is like you get the pannered bar um, and then you start getting a lot of bump steer up and down throughout the travel. Um, but what they did was mount the steering box like under the driver's seat back up at the at end of that suspension link and had a couple bell cranks and stuff so that when the suspension moved up and down, you had no bump steer because none of that stuff was pivoting from different centers from each other. Man see that's not something i would have ever thought of it's 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 ingenious and you know when you're when you're doing things like like this you're pushing the limits and in some ways trying to find ways around rules because you know the rules are are meant to be broken that way you can find better ways of doing things yeah and there uh, are a lot of rules to begin with in off-road racing most of it is like okay this class has stock style suspension or this class you can notch the frame for a little more up travel or this class you can only reinforce stock suspension you know type stuff um and so there's there's stuff to be done there but you know necessity is the mother of all invention it's like i'm stuck with the solid axle how am i going to get a little more travel out of it you know move the steering box around and this and that and yeah ingenuity is um is what i see a lot um in that in those sorts of trucks and no two trucks are the same short of the spec class but even then they'll do whatever they can to try and get a little bit of an edge yeah and there are manufacturers now you know there's a little more parity um i guess within each manufacturer you know each manufacturer has their own idea of how things should work um and no you compare trucks from different manufacturers obviously they're not going to drive the same but there's herbst and and brenthal and jimco and geyser you know they pump out a lot of vehicles um it if you just want to be someone that buys a vehicle there's a few guys that still make their own trucks but for the most part you know like herb smith it's not quite like renting a truck but it kind of is you, you know you pick the truck up there from the race you know you go to the race they do your pit support um and then you bring it back to their shop after the race but you still kind of technically own the truck you know there's some guys that will buy a truck from herbst and then keep it work on it themselves it just depends but similar to like the ferrari fxx uh from 2008 or so where you would buy this two million dollar ferrari and it would just stay uh, at the ferrari headquarters and when you want to race it or drive it they would load it onto a ferrari semi and take it to the track and you'd fly <laughs> to the track and yep. then you could race your car you'd bring it in and then their mechanics would check the tires and and do all the pit stuff and then when you're ready to go back out you're good and then at the end of the day you drive away in something else and they take your car and go put it back in mothballs yeah but i think that was forced by ferrari wasn't it yeah, that was that was mandatory. You never got to take a uh, delivery of the car. Yeah, there's you know a lot of guys either don't have the time or you know maybe necessarily the manpower. Um, so they'll pay Herps to do all the prep work and everything um, and pit support. You know if they don't, it's hard to find good 
pit crew, reliable pit crew members. Um, so if they don't want that headache, um, it's more way more expensive to do it that way than you know buying a few meals in a hotel room for some guys. But yeah, exactly. Because there's a lot of people that probably want to go out and do that. Not everyone's as qualified as they would like to be. Yeah. Um, and then like yeah, you know, one of my, I guess, the level of trophy trucks have been around since '95 or something now, and so there's 25 years of like learned, and then 25 years of looking at the other guy's truck now and everything, um, and. So a trophy truck rear end is based off a nine inch. It's just a 10 inch ring gear, a little stronger case, um, and 36 spline axles, I think, are, are common now. And that doesn't sound very big because, oh, 35 spline axle, but these are about 50% larger than the 40 spline axle. Um, your axle shaft is two inches in diameter, um, and you still break them. Uh, Full float rear ends and the bearings are four inch ID bearings, four and a half inch ID bearings. Um, hubs you don't really have a problem with. Um, yeah, and then just spooled real rear diff. So stupid simple rear end. Um, four link, uh, 32, 33 inches of rear wheel travel in the trophy truck. And hold on, did did you say 32 inches of travel? Yes. That's like almost three feet. Yeah. Um, you'll hear higher, you'll hear lower, and it's it's really only kind of about the travel. It's how well it's controlled. So you could have four feet of suspension travel, but if you can't control it, it's not going to do you any good. So there's kind of a balancing line there. Um, and the shocks to control that, you'll have an 18-inch travel, four-and-a-half-inch, five- or six-two bypass shock on that, and a coilover um, with external coolers and – uh, people are still trying to figure out how to keep the shocks from boiling oil. Like you'll burn the stickers off the, the shock bodies uh, if you don't do stuff right. Um, you can actually break parts uh, by going too slow. You will, because you don't get on top of stuff. So now you're in the suspension travel uh, much more. Oh yeah. You're not planing across them. Yeah. So the suspension is working harder because it's having to travel more. Um, that's something I know from from motocross. There's, you know, there's a lot of trails out where I like to ride that kind of get uh, acceleration and braking bumps, and uh, they'll go on for for almost miles. Um, there will be uh, seven to ten minutes straight of you hanging on, and if you don't go fast enough to plane across them, then yeah, you're getting full compression and full rebound, you know, all the time on your suspension versus if it's just moving you know, two inches instead of six or seven, um, you know, it's not going to generate that same kind of heat. So that's kind of what they're doing, like a boat planing on the water. Yep, exactly. Um, and then most trophy trucks, the front will have around 20, 22 inches of wheel travel. I think our spec trophy truck has 20. Um, and that's, you know, m maybe a four inch body shock instead of a 4.5 because it's got less travel and less, therefore, well, not therefore, but it's one single AR to control instead of a four link and a rear end and everything. Um, and, you know, six piston, I think we have J Mars, you know, similar in level to like probably step above Brembo and Willwood and those guys, but not like a, an Alcon or something, not a $25,000 brake package. Um, but, you know, a single bypass shock on the rear end of this truck is $3,000. Um, so, 
you can you can get like a rolling chassis, like just the chassis not pad out or anything for like fifty grand, but then you're gonna have to put twenty five thousand dollars worth of shocks on it, you know, buy a ten thousand dollar rear end, you know, with the ring gear and diff and axles and everything, and then spend ten grand on brakes, and then you gotta tap it out for body panels, buy the body, and bodies are for the most part probably last in five thousand dollars, but teams like Herbst have moved to carbon fiber and it looks like carbon fiber from an F1 car. It's perfect. Um, this is beautiful to look at when they don't paint it. Um, and the funny thing is, so we use, um, trackers you, that kind of talk to each, each vehicle, um, to let, it's like push to pass. Um, and they have trouble with the carbon fiber bodies cause it blocks the, the signal. But. Oh yeah. I, so why, why would you use a car, carbon fiber body as opposed to a, fiberglass for durability because it's cool (laughs) (laughs) i don't know with that i don't know when your truck's seven hundred fifty thousand dollars you know what's a fifteen thousand dollar carbon or twenty thousand dollar carbon fiber body oh it's the why not factor (laughs) yeah and well so we use like forced air systems and now there's these like the mcmillans and bryce menzies have their air condition they run through an air conditioner unit now they're forced air so Really? I, they're not, I guess at a thousand horsepower, you can afford the parasitic loss. And I, I'm not sure how they're driven. It might be an electric motor or something. Um, but there's two units, one for the driver and one for the passenger and they're seven grand a piece. So. Wow. But I, I tell you what, you're racing through Mexico for 30 hours. I would like to have some air conditioned air piped in because <laughs> it's piped straight in through the back of your helmet. Yeah, and even level. even warm air feels pretty good, and half of it is for the positive pressure to keep the dust out. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've heard a lot is just to keep the because those those trucks are not quite as sealed up as your family sedan. <laughs> not quite. Uh, There's a little more dust rolling around when you don't have windows. Yeah, um, it, and your helmet still gets dirty. You'll be wiping the inside of your helmet every chance you get. Um, we do use like helmet skirts and stuff. Um, to help keep the dust out, um, to help keep fire out. God forbid there's ever a fire, but um, yeah, that's kind of I guess the basics of your modern modern vehicles is the big shocks, the high travel numbers, you know, the now air conditioned forced air cooling. Um, and these are generally an LS3, except for the unlimited class. Uh-huh. You know, it's generally be a, a uh, uh, but a more spec motor. They're not all uh, totally custom. There's a right. lot of a lot of crate motors uh, for most of the of the levels. Yeah, and there's even crate motors for trophy trucks. I guess they're just not sealed or anything. There are like Dugans and uh, a few other companies that slip my mind. But you know, just call them up and be like, "Hey, I want a trophy truck motor," and they'll ship you one. You know, there's they've been pretty scienced out by each company at this point. Yeah, you probably get a, a solid start no matter what. Yeah, and then it's just can you as a team keep the motor alive? Like, you know, keep oil in the motor, keep dust out of it, keep it cool enough. You know, that's what makes the motor survive is and all that stuff is hard. When you're going through silt, like tip that's three feet deep, you know, driving through top compounder and you're, you know, pinned at 8,000 RPM, but you're going two miles an hour, you know, that's, things get hot. <laughs> yeah, and you're you know, to a large extent, you're going to be counting on airflow over radiators. Yep. Um, and a lot of the radiators you see mounted, 
you know, in the back where the bed would be in a trophy truck and on the back of stuff. And they're, you know, the size of my dining room table <laughs> and, and they've got giant electric fans yep. covering them, you know, completely. And those are running the whole time. Must make some racket too, but you probably don't hear it over the uh, exhaust. No, you, you don't. And they, those fans aren't that loud, but you know, the, like in this, the spec truck, it's, you know, right behind your head, the radiator for protection and for airflow. Um, mm-hmm. Because one of the races we went through was probably, you know, something a hundred years ago stacked this wall of rocks that was like a foot thick and, you know, five feet tall. And we got a little off course and banged through this thing and totally destroyed the front end of the truck. And that would have been bye-bye radiator. But, but yeah, exactly. If it was on the, on the front, you can't, you can't have anything on the front of the truck. You can't afford to lose. Yeah. And it's a packaging issue too, because the radiator has to be so big. There's nowhere to put it up front. Yeah, and it's not just a radiator, is it? It's probably uh, a couple of them, unless it is that one giant radiator. It, it depends. Um, on the, on this spec truck, there's a it's kind of a mini looking radiator, but that's for the power steering. That's just air to fluid. Uh, then there's regular uh, cool uh, radiator for the motor, and then there's it'd probably be a you know the considered a stock size like Ranger or something radiator just for the transmission. Yeah, that's what I was thinking because the like the Bugatti has 12 radiators or something uh, annoying <laughs> like that. So I'm thinking, you know, like you said, power steering, a transmission, engine, uh, oil cooler, um, and then all the shocks, you know, ideally have a, a, a reservoir uh-huh. to them to kind of increase your square inches around them to try and get more airflow over more percentage of the fluid yep. to try and cool it off. So cooling is, is seems to be, especially again, racing out in the desert. Sure. It's going to be 20 degrees at night, but in the day it's going to get hot and you're going to be running that thing hard. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're moving, you don't even really have to be going that fast, like 30 or 40 miles an hour, you know, and it, it doesn't feel that bad. I don't know if it's just because, you know, you're got the adrenaline going and not really paying attention to that or what, but. Do you run the, the, the buggy differently during the day versus at night? Nope. It's 100% all the time. That's the only way you can drive those things and and have them work. There's no like 90 or 95% unless something's broken. Wow. So really, it really is. There's, there is no, uh, you know, it's. 110 degrees outside we gotta let off a little bit to try and cool the cool the engine it's just keep her to the floor yeah i mean unless you're having some kind of cooling issue and it is overheating or something you know then then you do slow down and pay attention to that stuff but at night you're only limited by how well you can see yeah and that's that's the next thing is uh, the suspensions you know improved over the years and now direct injection in engines and and the such, but I would think lighting in the last five years might have been the biggest change. I, the big change has been the LED bars. Um, I personally don't think they actually put out as good of light as a good HID, um, old school bulb light. Um, the old HIDs throw the light further. Um, it's a cleaner light, less harsh, even though HIDs are fairly high color temperature. Um, I think they just kind of cut through things better. Um, we do use LEDs for, at least on the buggy, for fill. 
um, for the closer up stuff. And, you know, you can't get like Baja designs or something that's a step above rigid um, and Vision X, um, same level, um, that do in the last five years, I would say, have improved from the original kind of LEDs you would get. They have the pods now and better reflectors. Um, and on the spec truck, it was 100% LEDs and they just didn't quite have the right ones. Um, it still put out a lot of light, but you were always toggling between lights to figure out which ones you needed for the situation. Yeah, my experience with different kinds of lights like that when, when driving or riding has been, um, for me, I like having an LED and like a halogen because the blue light uh, from the LEDs, because they're, they're just generally uh, more of a you know higher K, um, I don't know. It's it's hard to see definition on the ground yeah. for me. It could be my eyes. No, I agree. I feel like there's a better definition with a more yellow uh, tint. Uh, so for me, I like having LEDs to kind of shine mostly in front, but I also feel like there's a hard cutoff of where the light is, and it doesn't doesn't uh, have a gradual uh, fade at the edges. Yeah, again, could be the ones that I'm using, but um, like the halogens I have, you know, like everyone else, I have KT daylighters on my truck cause you know, I'm a basic white guy <laughs> and, um, I, I really like the light from them though. You know, they're a standard bulb. Um, but they, they have a very transitional light pattern yeah. from, you know, all the way from both edges as far as my peripheral will see. And then it gets more, you know, focused in the middle and then they, they cross over in the middle. Uh, but I, I find that I see more with that than I do when I ride in like my buddy's truck that has, you know, three different led light bars on them. I think there's, those are nice to have, but, uh, especially when we're setting up camp with them, it's, it casts a lot of shadow. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say that it, they create shadows as, as along with light. And I think that's because of the, the kind of softness that they don't have that you were talking about with the, the halogens. Um, so I don't know, it's mm, comes down to per, personal preference, I think in that, that department. Maybe run both run a, you know, run a rigid at the top and put some daylighters in the grill and, and get best of both. Yeah. And, that, and I'm a fan of like the, the Hella HIDs. They've always worked great um mm-hmm. baja designs doesn't make actually hids anymore and that's kind of a shame but well you, you sell what people buy yeah so. exactly and you know it's a thousand dollars a pod for you know a, a baja designs hid light so i can kind of see why people went to the cheaper light bars but you could still i think we lined up for the spec truck four thousand dollars worth of lights and that was a couple big light bars several smaller ones some some amber colored ones for the the cutting through the dust a little bit at close range and um it's easy to spend money fast and on good lights um there's a lot of really cheap ones you can get that will they'll work for a minute and they'll either we've had them fall apart we've had uh just electrical quit working um and the big thing is the like dust cover the plastic just gets impregnated with dirt right away. I don't know if it's a static thing or what, but you can't ever get them clean. 
Yeah, and that's that's then you're it's not cheap. It's very expensive because you've wasted it. You've gotten yep. nothing for that money. One of the guys, I think, on the buggy, we had a single light bar across the top. I think he had to reach out and hold it for like you know the last ten miles of a section one time or something at night, you know, so they could go and he's always changing arms every two seconds because his arms are getting tired and then you don't have anything to hold on to when you're doing that and you can barely hold on to it because you're tied back into the seat so now you're, yeah it's just a... might as well just hold a flashlight out the window yeah <laughs> or at least you got a grip on it yeah so i don't know um yeah probably um so the first time i went down to mexico I did a race was with my friends from here in Bend and we had some other friends over that met us down there. And we took the buggy down there to do the Noro 1000, which at the time was over four days. You stopped the race ended at 11 o'clock every night. If you got in after 11, you just counted as finishing at 11. If you started the next day, just at the back, um, went from Ensenada to Bay of LA where we camped. And then it went to, uh, Laredo La Paz. And then it ended in, uh, Cabo San Lucas. Um, so each of those stops was, you know, the night. I can't remember if it goes Laredo La Paz or La Paz Laredo. Um, but, you know, it, people in the car got a shot in a beer as they crossed the finish line every night. And then if you had a wristband, it was, you know, kind of open tequila bar. Um, so it's, you know, everyone's there having fun and people there get hotels and people just, you know, working on their car every night in the hotel. Um, and then this, this one we finished um, I went down just to help, um, you know, I think it was on day two, we had some electrical issues. Everything on day one ran perfect, except the intercom was being staticky, um, couldn't really talk to each other. But then on day two, um, kind of early, uh, kind of the racetrack went right by the highway. So we were able to pretty well keep an eye on the car and talk to them and stuff. And they kind of split off and went off to the towards the ocean and we kept going south well we kind of lost contact with them and we're like i don't know this we should kind of be able to talk with them right now so um in mexico every 100 to 200 miles on the highway they have military checkpoints um and they can get crowded um not really you don't really get hassled especially during the races uh, but so we went through before we really decided we'd lost contact you know and so we turned back around um and then went through the checkpoint again and they're always more hassily going north um, just because of drug smuggling and stuff. Um, so we went through and sat there and tried to uh, every chase vehicle and every, and the race car have satellite phones. Um, so we tried, you know, tried them on the satellite phone, nothing. Um, and then pretty soon our sat phone rings, but from one of the other chase vehicles that's 200 miles away and they're talking to them on the sat phone. So they hold it up to their radio and all this stuff. And finally they're like, Car's dead. It's dead, dead. No, no fans, no lights, no nothing. So we're like, we're walking out, you know, we're going towards the highway. We're in kind of on this nice road in this little valley here. Um, and we're, uh, we're sitting at the checkpoint and we kind of look over. We're like, well, the race course is that way. This is a nice road and it's in the valley. So we, you know, take the big Dodge Dually with the enclosed trailer, hauls the race car and stuff and start putting down this road. And after about a mile, the road just kind of ends. We're like, oh, crap and we get out and kind of look see if we can find the start of the road again and it's it's there's like several bulls but they're not fenced in or anything i don't know if they're just roaming but you know they they start giving us the like you know tapping it together with their foot and their stuff and so we get in and start turning around to leave 
and the two guys in the race car come walking up and you know they kind of had to wave and yell at us to get their our attention so they hop in and we drive another mile to the race car and it's just sitting there on the side of the course you know and the battery had rattled itself to death and i guess caused an open circuit or something so that the alternator couldn't even charge and it killed everything um so it turned out to be like a really simple fix um got got them back on the road um and then you know putted our way out and then met them at the finish line and then the next day um i didn't bring my helmet or my gear or anything because i wasn't planning on getting in the car well the guys had other ideas so i scrounged together from everyone on the team, you know, helmet, the fire suit, gloves, shoes, everything, um, and started the second leg on day three. Um, and the way the legs work down there is there's a special section, which is the race section, the dirt, and then there's a transfer section, the highway. So the transfer sections have a minimum time. It's like it, you must take 30 minutes to go this 30 miles. If you get there too soon, we'll penalize you. Um, so we do the, I got the one guy got out. I got in. We did fuel and everything, you know, during the transfer section, and then we got and to our start of the special. And you can just pull over and wait if you're early, to an extent, and then you go check in. Well, we're sitting there, and there's five cars behind us, and then there's ten cars behind us, and then there's fifteen cars behind us. We can't figure out what's going on. We've been stopped for like a half an hour now, so we get out and start talking. And I guess uh, one of the race cars had caught on fire uh, right on the race course, and the all the shrubbery and trees and stuff were on fire around the race course um and it come to find out um it was the uh land terrible hearse land shark which is kind of an iconic vehicle in the sport it showed up in the the late 90s and kind of took everyone's lunch money it was you know top of the heat for a few years there it was just you know, everything on it was perfectly dialed in and scienced out when it came out, you know, and they brought it back for this race just to race it. And so we saw it come out on the trailer and shambles and we're like, oh, man, you know, it just kind of put a damper on things. And then they so we got like a 15 mile police escort to the next spot in the race. And at Nora, you get a GPS plot of the race course. But where they moved us to wasn't on the, the course was nowhere near where we were starting. So you also get a road book with dangers and turns, you know, it's like you're right through this fence and you drop down into the narrow bridge with a washout on the left, you know, it's basically almost rally notes. So they're like, go straight on this road for 12 miles. You'll see the race course and then turn left. So I think the buggy tops out at 98 or something. We're going 98 on this road and we're weaving in and out of farm traffic like uh, big trucks hauling guys and they're, you know, waving their hats, telling us to go faster and all this stuff. And so we're weaving in and out of them and then hit the race course and turn left and, you know, into the dirt and through the dump uh, and, and all this stuff. And we had, you know, weaving in and out, you can kind of see people right in front of you and you, the dust can get pretty thick and you, you fall back and then it gets thin and you pull forward. And um, the guy who was driving at the time, Joey, pretty experienced driver, pretty twisty. And we had hit a, you know, he kind of blew a corner and we hit this tree and upended it and ended up getting high centered on the roots. It came right out of the ground, um, but we didn't have reverse. So we couldn't just back off the tree. Um, so we got, we have uh, the max tracks, traction sticks or whatever you call them. So we're trying to use those, but the way it's balanced, they don't, the tires don't grip and all this stuff. And so we're, you know, it's just, drenched in sweat at this point 
So we finally just get the toe strap out and you just stand there and a couple of race car guys went by and the, I think it was a Bronco, you know, stopped and gave us a tug and got off of that. And we got going again. And then about, I don't know, a mile later, he hit another tree, did the exact same thing, but this time he kept his foot in it. So we kind of just went right over it. And he's like, all right, maybe I'll stay out of fourth gear now. Um, <laughs> so we're, we're cruising along and, Finally, it's just a straight line on the GPS. I told him, you know, it was straight for a little bit. It let me take a break because, you you know, it takes a lot of energy to call all that stuff out, you know, accurately um, and at the right time. So, you know, let me, you know, I got a chance to kind of look out the side and a little bit of scenery and the ground just dropped out from under us. And we're going 80 or 90 at this point, you know, and it's just it hit a little rise in the road, but, you know, took off. I don't know how much air we got or anything, but you didn't even feel it hit the ground. Um, and we, then we, you know, just kept cruising along and then, uh, another, then the next stop was a driver change and the passenger change. So I got in and just, we paced the car on the road for a while and then finished that day out. Um, and then rebuilt the suspension in the morning as kind of preventative maintenance, reshim the front end because with those, uh, VW style front ends. You got to shin the kingpin and everything to get it in the right spot. Did all that and then finished the race. And that was, it was a good fun race. No issues. I don't think we had to do a single spare part other than the battery. Um, and then, yeah, we stayed on the boat in the marina for four days, went marlin fishing, um, just kind of hung out afterwards and then drove home. Um, that, that was my first Nora 1000 experience. Well, that's that sounds like a, a a great experience that I would I would very much uh, enjoy. I gotta find a way to get down there and do that sometime. That that's a that's a good time. I know it's not always that that um not that that sounded easy. But, uh, <laughs> Things don't always go that well. That yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you've done uh, a lot of other races that were uh let's say more challenging um, <laughs> yes. for your patience we, we've made it 13 miles in a race we've made it 43 miles in a race um and that was actually the last two times we've raced down there um one time the motor was just too old and they put the wrong gas in it and it blew up the motor and then the other time the driver rear lug nuts didn't get torqued so they started coming loose and it ended up shearing all the lug studs off and oh, due to man. some miscommunications, someone went the wrong way and brought the wrong part. So it took us like six hours to fix. Um, and then, you know, we were pretty much out of the race at that point. We're not sure if we can finish. And then due to a comedy of errors, uh, they rolled the truck a thousand feet after they got it running again. Oh, so, <laughs> so, you, so you get to race just a few miles and then the wheel shears off uh -huh. you spend six hours fixing it only to make it another thousand feet yep. and it rolls and done yep oh. yep that i mean that them's the brakes but um yep yep that's the, that's the cost and then you get you know for that reward of every once in a while making it a thousand miles and finishing it up yeah and so with that team um the first time i raced with them we did finish the race it was it was kind of odd in that no one knew anyone. It was a team put together over the internet. Um, the guy who knew the owner of the truck had bought a race car from one of my friends. And he's like, well, we're going to do the thousand. Do you know anyone that can come help us? And so he, my friend got in contact with me and a couple of my other friends. So the three of us headed down there 
And then there were a couple of that guy's friends there. And then there was like a couple friend of friends, you know, you know, that's never really a recipe for success. Um, Not for multiple reasons, but um, so the owner, the owner's friend, my friend and I went down there two weeks before the race started. We did a week of pre-running. So we did the whole race course in a four seater Can-Am recon, put our own notes in the GPS um, took, I think four, four days to do it. You know, we stayed, uh, in Catavina and the, there's like no phone service at this place, no cell service. It's a dollar for a hundred megabytes of internet. Um, my friend opened his Snapchat and promptly went through that. Um, ate dinner there, talked to some locals out in the back, you know, they gave us barbecue and everything. Um, it's a little podunk town and it's just got the best people there. Um, and that's what makes Baja great is the people that are there. Everyone's friendly. You know, they, they understand that you're bringing so much money to the area. That's not why they're friendly to maybe some, but, um, you can pretty much get out of jail by giving them brace stickers down there. You you stop in a little town you're going to have 12 kids hanging out the side of your truck trying to grab stickers from you. Um, and yeah, they, they want you there. They're, they're happy to see you. That's that they look forward to those races. Yeah. That's kind of their thing down there. Uh, and for the thousand, I don't think the kids even have school the day the race starts. I think they just let them out to start, watch the start of the race. Um, so we, you know, we got, we finished pre-running and we got back to town. There's a little bit of work to do on the truck. And of course, you know, we all ended up doing it all the night before the race, just because that's the way things happen. You don't notice something's wrong until the night before the race. Um, I think an idler pulley was on its way out, uh, so it wasn't holding the belt on correctly. And of course, that's the one part on this crate motor that isn't the stock GM part, or it's it's a weird one that's hard to find. Um, of course. So we found one and got that fixed. And so uh, I can't remember how far back we started. So I think it goes trophy truck, class one, and then us. So we're the third class to start and we don't qualify. It's a draw. It's just look at the draw for your start position within the class. And I think we started fairly far back. Um, and, you know, we had our plan drawn up. I think we had three different vehicles doing support, you know, and we made, you know, the 50 page book, you know, these people are going to be here at this time. This is what they have in their vehicle. You know, this is what you're doing at the pit, you know, and all, all that stuff. Um, and I had made a little program to kind of track our fuel consumption, see what kind of mileage we would get um, to kind of help determine how many dump cans of gas we need to have at each pit stop. Um, and it compares, it tells us if we're going to finish in time and like how far, kind of overall how well we're doing. So we had that going for us and watched the start of the race and then headed out of town um, to meet our, you know, our first pit and I'd, I think it was going to be down south of El Rosario. So I think at race mile 300 was going to be my, my truck's first pit, not necessarily the first pit for the race truck, but my first pit. Um, and we're heading out. I think we're in, uh, I can't remember what little town. Um, the guy I'm riding with is a native Spanish speaker. Um, and he kind of blows a stop sign right as the cops going the other way. Um, he's like, Oh, he's going to pull me over. He's going to pull me over. And he, Cop took a minute to turn around, but he turned around and pulled us over. So we preemptively pulled over and the guy's talking to him and he was, you know, talking to him in Spanish and all this stuff and pointing at the GPS. And he's like, oh, it's just watching my GPS, you know, and then saw the car and all this and that. And 
you know, he, and the cop was like, oh, you're coming back to the station with us, you know, and he's like, oh, we're in the race. We can't, you know, he's like, oh, you're coming back. We're going to impound your vehicle. So we, 10 miles the other way, this police station was, and it actually looked like more like a little tourist uh, information center, um, but he took him in the back and, you know, comes out like 20 minutes later or something and ended up paying 40 bucks or something. Um, but he came out to the truck and he's like, oh man, you got to get out there. They're impounding the truck. And, you know, I, you know, my mouth is like all drooped. And I'm like, no, yeah. no way. This is not happening. You know? And he's like, oh, I'm just messing with you. Um, <laughs> you know, so we, we turned around and got going, you know, and then Brent, and there was construction. So we hit a traffic jam and all this stuff. And we finally get there. And, um, at this pit stop was the driver and co-driver change. Um, it get, was getting into night at this point, and it's a very tight, technical, slow section. Um, so we you know, made sure all the lights worked and everything, got the drivers in there and sent them on their way. Um, and then I think we headed to mile somewhere around the high 400s or 500 um, for, for a night pit. And, you know, the truck pulls in, everything, you know, give the once over, put gas on it, look over it again, you know. Didn't see it the first time, but like the third once over, we started seeing fluid coming out of the diff, you know, so I climb under there and every single bolt on the third member was loose. So it was leaking fluid. Um, so we got that all tightened up. That took a little bit because there's a big old skid plate. You got to take like three of the pinion uh, bearing support bolts out of and all this stuff. And so we got that fixed. But the problem is you got to lift up the back of the truck to stick your head in there and see if there's fluid in there due to the positioning of the fill cap. So we got like four people behind the truck and looked in there real quick. And I think we put like a half a cord in it or something. You don't want to overfill it because then it gets full of air and really doesn't do its job. So, um, sent them on their way to finish off their little section. And then there was going to be another co-driver and driver change. Um, and the one thing you never ever do on a running race car is turn it off. Um, cause you never know if it's going to start again. Uh, yes. and it, and someone accidentally, I think the driver getting out accidentally hit the switch and turned it off and well, it didn't start again. Um, <laughs> so, um, the, we pulled off a panel near the front and just hit it with, started with a hammer and it started back up. So not a big deal. Um, high tech situation. Yes. <laughs> percussive maintenance. <laughs> but, uh, so, um, you know, they took off and I, know, I think they made it seven or eight miles and rolled it. Um, we had left the pit and then we got the word to come back. Um, and, you know, it's an active race course and we're in a position where there's going to be two, two or 300 race cars still behind us. So we can't just put down the race course in our chase vehicles. So I think the, the, the driver walked out. Um, to tell us to where it was. And I think he ended up hurting his neck or something. He went to get checked out by the doctor. We actually had to get back on the highway and drive down. We found an access road. We keep maps of random roads and we keep a few satellite photos around just for roads, see where you can get in to get stuff. Um, and it, and it rolled, it landed on its side. So the engine was full of oil. So we had, you know, pull the spark plugs, pump all the oil out, you know, and, um, Due to some design issues, um, the top of the roll cage was really messed up. You couldn't even sit in it without, you know, you'd have to stick your head out the window. Um, so we got to it and got it out, got it running, got it out. Um, and at this point, it's, I think, like 6 in the morning, so it's starting to get light. So we meet it out at the highway, 
you know, and everyone is just, you know, heartbroken, you know, and it's like, but we got to continue. Um, so we bent the rough skin up out of the way. And that was the big thing, keeping you from being able to sit in it. Um, and the owner was kind of like, uh, you know, kind of wanting to give up. And my buddy here has been doing this forever. It, that's he's super competitive. And the, the owner of this truck is not a very competitive guy. He wants to just go have fun. Um, so he's like, Oh no, I'll, I'll drive it. I'll drive it. And I think there was something weird starting to happen with the electrical system at this point. Like, even though the radiator fans are wired on the same circuit, only one of them was on and some other stuff. And so he, you know, got in and he tore off and then, and the 100 or 150 miles later, there's a, a kind of a hill, short hill climb. And the truck was, I don't know, the motor had to have been at like 250 or 260 degrees at this point. You could feel it 10 feet away from the truck, how hot this thing was. Um, and we're trying to get it to cool down and all this stuff. And But the, it uses this MoTeC PDM power distribution module, like solid state switching system. You just push a button, it's got a light, and it's all, you know, digital, no toggle switches and nothing was working on, on the system. You couldn't turn, you know, couldn't turn fans on, couldn't turn, change fuel pumps, couldn't turn your the helmet pumper on and off and, and all this stuff. And it would only reset if you turn the truck off and then it worked for like 10 minutes. So we turned the truck off and, you know, and then we're like, well, now what? And just let it sit for a minute and then, you know, turn it back on and, you know, fans started working and everything. So we're like, okay, you know, maybe it's all right. You know, so we, he takes off up the hill climb and then uh, mile 70 or 70 miles left. So race mile, I think it was 900 miles that year. So around 830, um, the owner gets back in, you know, and half the people want to like turn the truck off to reset it again. And I'm like, it's running. We need to just let it run. And I don't, like you said, don't turn <laughs> off a, a perfectly good. Yeah. But th they wanted to turn it off to like reset the electrical again because it quit working again. Um, but I'm like, no, it's, it's working. It fans are on. Let's just go. And the owner had left before we made our decision. So, um, we all headed to the finish line and you can tr actually track them online these days where they're at and everything. And it was starting to get dark and they're 30 miles away, you know, kind of where it's really just pavement left. Um, but they're there for 10 minutes. They're there for 20 minutes. They're there for 30 minutes. They were like, what's going on? And, you know, all dimmed on us. It's dark. They can't turn the lights on because the switches don't work. Um, so, and there's the very last little pits there run by Baja pits. There's, I think, 11 Baja pits. They're all run by volunteers. Um, and what they ended up doing was just wiring the lights straight back to the back of the output of the alternator. Um, so Ooh. no switch or anything. They were just on. So finally we see him moving again and there's a few cars. So at the end of this race, there's a podium, you drive up on it and they interview and everything. And there's a couple there and then we get there, you know, but we can't turn the truck off cause the buttons don't work. And, <laughs> um, so we're sitting there idling while everyone's doing this interview and stuff and, you know, feel kind of bad, but you know, we get up, finally it's our turn. We get up on stage and we climb up and start pulling spark plug wires and turn the thing off. Um, so we get it turned off, you know, do our five, 10 minute interview, you know, have some fun, uh, get asked some questions about why we still race with the cage that was that messed up. Um, and then, yeah, we uh, pushed it off because the starter wouldn't work and then bang on the starter a little bit and it started and the electrical worked again for 10 minutes. And, you know, um, the house we had was in town. So we just drove it back to the house, you know, and, 
body on this thing is completely destroyed, like half the lights, you know, from the rollover and everything. And I don't know, it, it you know, finished, we finished in like 30 hours and 23 minutes or something. Um, if we hadn't done the rollover, I think we were on pace for about 24 hours, which would have been a top 10 finish in the class. Um, instead, I think we finished in the mid 20s. Wow. Well, that, so, I mean, you went there with a truck and went home with a truck? Yeah. <laughs> Most of a truck? Yeah. Um, we made some design changes to our, ourselves after that, put in the above your head in the, the roof tubing had no triangulation before, and now it's got a, an X over each driver. Um, so it's it, 100% more rigid now than it was. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, it's easy to sit here and say, well, how did you, why would you not think of that? Even I would know that and I'm <laughs> a dullard, but you know, when you're that close and you're building and you're working on a thousand, you know, each person's working on a thousand different things, stuff slips through the cracks. There's no way to get everything. It, and that's how you learn is by testing it. Yeah. And this was a truck built by a company. It was like one of their prototype trucks. You know, there's a few uh, obsolete suspension mounting points on it and stuff. Now it was kind of their development mule. Um, and you know, m maybe they just skipped that part. They had raced it a couple years themselves before this owner bought it. Um, but I, yeah, never had any rollovers like we did, I guess in it. Yeah. I mean, I, I would hope that you would know if a truck had been rolled over before you bought it. Yeah. And, uh, the company, the, uh, score that puts on the race down in Mexico, you have to get a chassis inspection. It's good for one year. There's, it tells you very specifically in the rule book what size tubing to use, what material it can be made out of, what wall thickness, and some basic design uh, constraints. You know, A pillar, B pillar, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so, it has to be safe and competitive. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it passed their chassis inspection, but I don't think they're, you know, it specifies triangulation. It's like, you know, if you weigh over 4,500 pounds, it's got to be two inch 120 wall for the main tubes of your chassis and it's, that's kind of it, but. Wow. Well, that, that is, that is quite the adventure. <laughs> uh, thank you for, for sharing that story. I, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you have more stories. We'll have to have you back on again, uh, to tell some more stories and, um, and, you know, uh, we all originally met, um, through Mustangs. So, yep. uh, you know, can't go a whole episode without bringing up a Mustang. I, I still mm -hmm. got that same old Mustang. I put a battery in it a month or so ago. Um, it's got 200 and almost 30,000 miles on it now. Yeah, it's an SN95 Cobra yeah. in uh, Rio Red. Yeah, nine, 97. So it's got the 4.6. Um, mm -hmm. It's, I, I think it's kind of on its last legs. It, it burns oil and you can see the oil vapor come out of the engine and stuff. So I'm sure it's the rings, but. Um, I've got all the parts I've got, I can almost build two motors right now. I just need a couple cranks. So, well, I, I think if you can help build a, uh, a trophy truck and a buggy and we'll have to touch on your race ranger sometime, uh, teardrop, um, teardrop. Oh, it, it had a little accident. Oh, <laughs> it's gonna, no. it's gonna be like the $6 million man. Though. It's gonna be made much better. Well, I mean, that's, that's how you, that's how you learn that sort of stuff, but we'll, yeah, we'll have to go over that, uh, sometime as well. Lots, lots of other things. And we'll, we'll do it with, uh, one of the other guys on as well to you know, ask the questions I'm not thinking to ask. Yeah. 
until then uh thanks for thanks for coming on jamie it was really fun talking yeah and, uh, uh, thanks for having me I've, stories i've you know listened to this you know since it first came out so well you're you're one of uh one of the most loyal listeners <laughs> it's, uh, we appreciate it yeah definitely okay um well i won't uh i won't keep you up uh any longer uh or myself <laughs> um do you have any other any other thoughts or any anything that's nagging at you that you wanted to mention before we go? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Excellent. I just uh, in that case, just uh, everyone knows all the usual stuff. I won't harp on it again. Uh, so, thanks for coming on. We'll have you on again soon. Uh, this is where we say good night. All right. So good night, folks. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> thank you for listening to the garage night podcast a special thanks for jeff tracy and annie tamlin for joining the show this week until next week keep turning wrenches